What's next after all the months of lockdowns, vaccines, masks, and social distancing? Is our world ever going to get back to anything resembling normality? Well, truth is, God doesn't want us to return to normal or even to a new normal. He wants us to return to Him. And that's exactly what repentance means. It means a complete U-turn to return to God. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. As I said in the opening, I don't believe God wants us to return to normal or even to a new normal. He wants us to return to Him. And that's exactly what repentance means. We're presently in the window of time on the Hebrew calendar that the Jewish people refer to as the season of Teshuvah, an important Hebrew word meaning repentance. With Israel threatening once again to be locked down at this strategic time, it's indeed more than time to seek the Lord. While the Bible says now is the day of salvation, and every day should be potentially a day of repentance, nevertheless, on the Hebraic calendar, there's also a special annual season of reflection and repentance that's very helpful to believers to focus on making amends and taking spiritual stock of oneself to get one's house in order, so to speak, spiritual house cleaning, and not just spiritual downsizing, but having the slates wiped clean. The season of repentance leads up to Yom Kippur, the solemn day of atonement as described in Leviticus chapter 16 in the Torah in verses 29 to 31. It says, on the 10th day of the seventh month, you shall humble yourselves and not do any work, whether you are a native or the foreigner who resides amongst you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you that you may humble yourselves. And this is a permanent statute. So, leading up to the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people deliberately seek to repair relationships, to repent of transgressions, and to ask forgiveness from the Lord and from family and neighbors. The rabbis teach that it's not enough just to say sorry, but there should be sincere regret, and whenever possible, restitution should be made for any wrongs committed. Naming the sin also causes us to face reality and hopefully not to be a repeat offender. Rather than simply saying, I'm sorry, it's better to be specific, such as saying, for example, please forgive me for not telling you the truth, or please forgive me for saying hurtful words and so forth. Hopefully naming the transgression will help to bring about the desire for real change to prevent us from always having to ask for forgiveness over and over again for bad habits. 
Now, to repent literally means to return to God and to turn away from sins. And on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people recite a prayer to confess various sins. It's a collective list. It's corporate prayer, acknowledging that we are all sinners and we're all inclined to sin. Christian theologians call it original sin. And the rabbis refer to the evil inclination as mankind's congenital inclination to commit evil by violating the will of God. The term evil inclination is drawn from the phrase in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, where God says the imagination of the heart of man is evil. The Jewish people believe that confession of their sins on Yom Kippur will cause God to seal the book of life and that they will then be able to start a new chapter in a new year. But in actuality, the Bible teaches in both Testaments that a blood sacrifice is required to atone for sins. In fact, Christians believe the blood of Jesus, Yeshua, provided atonement for our sins. We believe the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness and that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that great truth is stated in 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament. But the list of the confessions made on Yom Kippur asking for forgiveness, I believe, is very instructive. So I want to share some of these confessions with you today. The Jewish people confess the sin which we have committed before God under duress, the sin we have committed before God without thought, the sin we have committed before God by the meditations of the heart, or the sin we have committed before God with malice and a hard heart, or sin committed through speech. And we can all say amen to that because the tongue, even though it has no bones, it's strong enough to break a heart. Words wound or words heal. And the Jewish people confess the sins that we have committed through speech with the evil inclination, intentionally or unintentionally, with falseness, with deceit, through defamation, by our verbal confession secretly or by a haughty demeanor, by running to do evil, by a lack of generosity, for sins and speech in business dealings. And the prayer continues, for all of these, God of pardon, pardon us, forgive us, atone for us. Well, I haven't shared the complete list, but these are examples from the list that should bring to mind the fact that sins do tend to accumulate. and They pile up, if not confessed regularly. I believe that Jewish prayers on Yom Kippur remind us of something that people have become much too casual about, and that is the holiness of God. You see, in our imperfections, we are well advised by the Word of God not to be judgmental of the imperfections of others. It's also amazing to me how many so-called ministries on the Internet seem to be comprised of nothing but clips criticizing other ministries. They don't seem to see the proverbial log in their own eyes, but point out the imperfections of others. It's like they have a bad case of the evil eye 
always looking for imperfections and sins rather than extending to others the benefit of the doubt or covering their sins. But Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 10, that a sign of the end times is that many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall even hate one another. It's such a temptation to be critical and judgmental. The old saying is true that when we point the finger, four fingers point back at ourselves. The Bible informs us that God uses our own measure of judgment against us. So it is certainly wise to practice restraint when we want to say or write something mean-spirited. Although it's tempting to let others do it, let's just stick to the truth because we're in this battleground of life to feed the sheep and not entertain the goats. Think with me for a moment how profound it must be that God brings himself to forgive us because our forgiveness had to be purchased by the priceless blood of Jerusalem's cross. The price was far from cheap. The price was the sinless life's blood of God's only begotten son. And now as God is presently in the process of restoring Israel, this time of year during the soul-searching month of Elul, leading up to the high holy days, is becoming increasingly interesting to evangelicals who watch Bible prophecy unfolding. Many evangelicals, in fact, believe that the rapture could happen at the time of the Feast of Trumpets in the fall. I describe myself as a Judeo-Christian because of the Hebraic foundation of my faith. It's so important to understand the foundations that God laid down in the Hebrew Bible and to study the festivals of the Lord, the festivals that he ordained, called Moda'im in Hebrew, and they're all types and shadows of the gospel. Bible teacher Derek Prince of Blessed Memory, one of our many mentors along the way in Jerusalem, often spoke and wrote about how we believers are indebted to the Jewish people. Yet many believers resent hearing that. It sounds astounding to me when I see and hear people claiming to be believers, and yet they ask in a foolish manner why we should be indebted to the Jewish people. They say we should only be indebted to the Savior. But they don't seem to realize that we would not have the Savior without the Jewish people. So we owe the Jewish people a tremendous debt that can't be calculated because they guarded and preserved for us the Holy Scriptures, diligently passing them down to us and giving us the Savior and all the foundations of our faith. How can we understand Christianity if we're not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures? For example, it's vital to know that in the Bible, the four spring festivals of the Lord, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Shavuot, or Pentecost as it's known among Christians, all four of these feasts represent the first coming of Jesus. And all four aforementioned festivals were fulfilled in the Lord's first coming, his first mission on earth as Redeemer. He was the Passover lamb. His body was the pierced and striped unleavened bread broken for us. He was the first fruits raised from the dead. And at the festival of weeks called Shavuot in 
Hebrew, or Pentecost in Christianity. The Lord sent us his Holy Spirit. But in all, there are seven Levitical festivals of the Lord. The four I just mentioned occur in the spring. And then there are three more Moda'in, three more festivals in the fall. The three biblical fall festivals that we are presently heading into are the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, but known in the Bible as the Feast of Trumpets, and more specifically in Hebrew, Yom Terah, meaning the Day of Shouting, followed by Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And finally, the seventh festival of the Lord is the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, called in Hebrew, Sukkot. Now, these three all foreshadow the Lord's second mission, the Lord's second coming, to restore the kingdom to Israel and to rule the world from the throne of Jesus' ancestral father, David, for a thousand years. And that's known as the Millennium Kingdom. So what about the intervening months between the spring and the fall festivals? That's the time we're presently living in right now. And it represents the church age, which is rapidly coming to its conclusion. So the church is now living in the time period between the Lord's two comings. But church leaders have got to wake up because at some point the church age will be finished. The last Gentile will be saved and the Lord will return and restore the kingdom to Israel. Only the Father in heaven knows for sure when Jesus will come the second time. But like a bride in waiting, we are definitely supposed to be anticipating and preparing for the Lord's second coming. And we're not supposed just to be drifting and living from day to day without any thought of his sudden appearing. Heaven forbid. Soon the annual cycle of observances that we pass through, a 40-day season of reflection, which begins on the first day of the Hebrew month called Elul. And this year, the Hebrew month of Elul began in the first week of August and the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur end uh, this year, mid-September. And these 40 days are sometimes called days of favor since the Jewish sages believe that during this time, God forgave the Jewish nation after the sin of the golden calf that they worshipped in the wilderness after being freed from Egyptian slavery. The sages believe the month of Elul marks a favorable season to return to the Lord for help in restoring broken and strained relationships. And according to a Jewish parable, during the month of Elul, the king comes out into the field and talks to the ordinary people. That means the king makes himself accessible to everybody. And this parable, of course, preaches on many levels. Because King Messiah, while he's seated presently at the right hand of the Father, he is also present 24-7 by his Holy Spirit with us in the world's harvest fields. And he sends his laborers into the harvest. The king informs us that the laborers are few and that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth more workers. The question is, are you in the field with the king? 
Now, here are, are some more thoughts on this time period. The Hebrew word, the month of Elul, is similar to the root of the verb search in Aramaic. And therefore, searching our hearts is part of repentance. Because the month of Elul is seen as a time to soul search and draw closer to God, it's customary to blow the shofar every morning, except on Shabbat, from the first day of the month until the day before the Feast of Trumpets. The shofar blasts are meant to awaken soul searching in preparation for the high holy days. This, no doubt, for born-again believers, brings to mind 1 Thessalonians 4.16, because soon we're going to hear the blast of the trump of God at the sudden appearing of Jesus in the clouds. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Now, every day during the month of Elul, it's also customary in Jewish circles to recite one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 27, a psalm of David. I wondered why this psalm, Psalm 27. Well, according to the sages, the high holidays are alluded to in this psalm. For example, they say Yom Kippur could be alluded to in the first verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation. For on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people believe God saves repentant souls from the prosecuting angels and inscribes their names in the book of life. Now, a Christian believes that Jesus, Yeshua, is our light and salvation, and he inscribes our names permanently in the Lamb's book of life. The sages also say that Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is alluded to in verse 5 of Psalm 27, where it says, For he shelters me in his sukkah, in his tabernacle. And this is the same protective understanding that we learn from God in the famous Psalm of Protection, Psalm 91, that so many of us are reciting these days. So for 40 days, the Jewish people blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and they recite a prayer that goes like this. Awake, you who are sleeping. Wake up and ponder your actions and deeds. Remember your creator and go to him for forgiveness. Don't be like those who waste years in seeking after vain things that neither profit nor deliver. Look well to your souls and let everyone forsake his evil ways and thoughts and return unto the Lord that he may have mercy on us. The sound of the shofar says, Awaken, sleeping ones. Awake from your sleep. Examine your deeds. Remember your creator and do repentance. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, Rabbi Shaul, the apostle Paul, surely drew from his Hebraic roots when he wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, you who sleep, and rise from the dead, and Messiah will give you light. This theme of awakening from sleep was also used by Paul when he wrote to the Romans, where he said, It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, 
For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And King David rightly wrote in Psalm 89, Happy are the people who know the festal shout. Or as some would interpret this verse, Happy are the people who know the sound of the shofar, who walk in the light of your countenance, O Lord. According to the Hebrew for Christians website, even the word shofar comes from a root that means to beautify, alluding to the beautification of our ways as we turn to God in sincere repentance. The solemn high holy days are the last 10 days of the 40 days of repentance. And those last 10 days are called the days of awe. That's a time when believers in Messiah would also be wise to examine our lives. After all, didn't the Apostle Paul admonish us that we should examine ourselves before taking the Lord's table? What a great reminder every year of why we blow the shofar. Are we sleeping in this very dangerous hour? Are we indifferent or are we alert, listening for the trump of God? Are we preparing our souls, living clean and holy lives in anticipation of the Lord's soon coming? I'm always looking for the coming of the Lord because His appearing is what the Bible calls our blessed hope. And believe me, that blessed hope is becoming more blessed by the hour as we see the condition that our world is in. Well, the high holy days are completed with the solemn festival of Yom Kippur, a day of fasting that concludes the season of repentance. And the holy day is a picture of Yeshua's atonement because in the days of the temple, a scapegoat was released into the wilderness, carrying away the people's sin. And another goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people. On the day of atonement, the high priest would wear special garments of linen. And we see Jesus, Yeshua, our high priest, wearing these same garments in Revelation chapter 1. In the Bible, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and enter into the Holy of Holies. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, we're taught that by his own blood, Jesus entered into once the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Well, now, when the last great shofar is blown, then the book is closed and the gates are closed. And if your name is not written in the book of life, Then you will be on the outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. As Jesus taught in his parable of the 10 bridesmaids in Matthew chapter 25. The Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the herald blowing the shofar, awakening the people to the coming king. Whereas Yom Kippur is a picture of the great judge entering into the courtroom of eternity, judging between those who are found guilty of sin and those who have been acquitted, those whose sins are covered by the blood, those whose names are written in the book of life, and those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life. It's so vitally important to be sure that you have repented of all your known and unknown sins and that you've asked God to inscribe your name in the Lamb's book of life by faith. Because when Jesus returns to the earth, the world will be redeemed from the curse and the world will revert to conditions as in the days of the Garden of Eden, 
when the lion and the wolf will once again lie down with the lamb. In those days, there's not going to be any concerns over climate change, and the inhabitants of the earth will be free from the curse, from all sickness and disease. Now, what happens after the season of repentance? On God's calendar, there is one last festival, the festival of joy, in which we're commanded by God to be joyful for one week, the Feast of Tabernacles. After Yom Kippur, the Jewish people began to build their sukkahs or tabernacles. Sukkot is the Hebrew plural of sukkah. And the Feast of Tabernacles or booths is known as the season of our joy. Also the Feast of the Ingathering. This festival is a time of great rejoicing in our salvation after we have repented and our sins have been forgiven and our names inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of God and His people dwelling together for eternity. This annual Tabernacles or Booths festivals remember the tents and the flimsy dwellings that the children of Israel lived in during their 40 years of wandering under God's protection in the wilderness when God's people lived in tents and God dwelt amongst them in the tabernacle. The sukkah rooftops are covered with palm branches and must be open enough to be able to see the stars at night. The people are commanded to eat and sleep in these humble dwellings for one week as a picture of dwelling in God's presence. And it's a joyous time of family camping and togetherness. The sukkah represents God as our eternal dwelling. And by the way, Sukkot is the time that many Bible scholars believe that Jesus, Yeshua, was actually born. For his name Emmanuel means God with us. And it's the festival of joy. So remember at his birth, the angels proclaimed, to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy, which shall be to all people. Sukkot is also called the Feast of the Nations because it's the Feast of the Ingathering of the Nations. This is the time to gather in the final harvest. Jesus tells us that the harvest refers to the end of the age. And when the books are all open, the wicked will be banished into everlasting fire and the righteous will make their eternal home with God and his Messiah. Presently, God is giving this world a mighty wake-up call, a mighty shofar blast with biological pestilence, wars, famine, earthquakes. But these shakings are also the beginnings of what the Bible calls the birth pains of Messiah. The Almighty has also given us the end-time sign of the blossoming fig tree. Israel, the fig tree, became a nation in 1948. And Paul wrote in the New Testament, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Because we have that sign of the fig tree. The Lord said he's coming when that sign develops. Now, if you have any questions or comments, I would enjoy chatting with you on social media or at our website, exploits.tv. Our ministry name is based on a verse from Daniel 11.32, which says, those who know God are going to be strong and do the works of the Lord. In other words, we're going to do 
mining exploits. Until next time, I'll keep contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.